Please turn in your Bible as we continue our series through the Gospel of Mark, finishing up in chapter 12 this week. Mark chapter 12, and we'll be reading the last verses of that chapter. Last week, we uh, tried to take a few moments and summarize the the last chapter or chapter and a half of Mark 11 and 12, and we saw the interactions between Christ and the Jewish leaders. We talked about how that he had talked, had questions coming at him from the Pharisees, from the Herodians, from the Sadducees, and most recently from the scribes. Um, and as Jesus answered these questions, some of many of which were, were intended to entrap him, he taught us about the kingdom. He taught us what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And in the verses we dealt with last week, we looked at verses 38 through 40. Um, and we talked about the warnings that Jesus issued about the scribes. One of these warnings had to do with how they mistreated widows, some of the poorest in the society of that day. And here he uses, in verses 41 to 45, Uh, 44, he uses a widow to teach his disciples once again. And as we approach this, we should see how she is an example of what wholehearted discipleship should look like. We should, as we always try to do, understand the core meaning of the text. But also, I think, especially with this text, we need to look at why and where it is placed and why. And why Jesus took the time there in Passion Week to observe the people that were giving their offerings and point out this widow to his disciples. Because I think there's a a secondary theme that we need to consider in this, and we'll try to look at that as we go. So I trust you'll be edified as we consider the meaning, the lesson, as well as the placement of this text and the events here in Mark 41 to 44. So let us read this text, but before we do, let us go to the Lord in prayer and seek his blessing upon the reading and preaching of his word. Lord, we we need you. We are uh, weak and helpless without you. Lord, but we thank you that your word is strong, that it's quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, we pray that you, by your spirit, would do your work in and through your word tonight. We need you and we need your word Lord, in it you have given us everything necessary for life and godliness. And so, Lord, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, would be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark 12, beginning with verse 38. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces. And have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called the disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, 
all she had to live on. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word this evening. The text that is before us is full of contrasts. I hope you see them. The, the poor widow versus the rich people. The meagerly offering that she puts in versus the vast sums deposited by the rich. And we must not miss the contrast with what we read last week and we included in the reading tonight. And that is of the, we'll call them the pompous scribes. Because I think that adequately describes their demeanor. And then they against, and against this, alongside this poor widow. We talked about the warnings that Jesus issued and how the, the, the scribes were prideful. They loved the praise of men. They wanted the place of prominence in the synagogue and at the feast. They had a false piety. They, they offered these beautiful flowery prayers so that they would be seen and recognized and loved by the people. But then Jesus said that they also devoured widows' houses. We don't exactly know what that meant. We talked about that some last week, but that word devour means to consume or to eat up, to consume completely. So we have to assume that there's this indication that the scribes were responsible for, for taking from these widows, these vulnerable women, and leaving them destitute. And the thing that was so reprehensible about those actions is that they, were, they came at the hands of men who were called, whose job it was to proclaim the law of God, to comment on the law of God, to preserve the law of God. And yet, they were ignoring God's law, which said they must protect those widows. Exodus 22 deals very plainly with widows and how the people of God, the covenant community, were to treat them. And God said, you must not mistreat widows or the fatherless child. And if they were mistreated, they could appeal directly to God. And God himself would mete out the punishment. God said there in Exodus 22 that his wrath would burn and he would kill them with the sword. Ironically, leaving that man's wife a widow. Because of the way a, a man or a person had treated a widow. That God loved and cared for widows in that way. That was the law of God that the scribes were called to protect and proclaim. And yet they were not living by that. So I think in this text, there's the primary theme of the example of the widow. And that's really where we're going to spend most of our time. But there's also this secondary theme that I want to keep kind of in the back of our mind. And that is this theme of judgment upon the Jewish leaders. And we've seen that already in the parable of, of the fig tree. We've seen it before, and that's something that Jesus is proclaiming. But we see it especially in the next set of verses as we move next time into Mark 13 and the Olivet Discourse. And those first few verses, if, if you want to take some time later this week to look at them where Jesus is saying that the temple will be destroyed and that there is judgment coming. So in a sense, this passage looks back on the previous passage and shows that this widow, whom I think we could say represents the widows that were taken advantage of by the scribes, 
and that she really represents wholehearted devotion to, to God and what that should look like. But it also looks forward to Christ's condemnation of the Jewish nation and the apostasy of the spiritual leaders of the Jews. These men were rejecting God's laws. They were rejecting God's way. And most importantly, they were rejecting God's son who came to seek and save the lost. So I want us to see this text, and I apologize, that's a rather long introduction, but I want us, see, us to see this text under three headings. And you have them in your outline, the observation of Christ, the offering both of the rich, and especially that of the widow, and finally the assessment that Jesus gives, the observation, the offering, and the assessment. Our text says that Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Jesus has now moved from the court of the Gentiles into a little closer into the temple proper, into the court of women. And there in that area, there were several brass receptacles shaped like trumpets in which people placed their offerings. Now, Jesus was not necessarily sitting there to see how much everyone brought in, but he was observing it. And he was, in a sense, people watching, but for a greater purpose. And he had a lesson to teach his disciples. We see here that this widow, and, and he wants to teach his disciples and us what faithful discipleship looks like, especially when it comes to our money. Even though Jesus wasn't simply there to watch what they brought... We know that Jesus does see what we bring. The story is told of Dr. John Broadus, a 19th century Baptist preacher who one Sunday morning followed the ushers up and down the aisles as the offering plate was passed and observed what everybody was putting in. And following that, he went up to the pulpit and opened to this text that we're looking at this evening. And he said something to the effect, you're upset with me, but remember... Jesus follows every usher up and down every aisle and sees what you put in. Now, maybe only a Baptist could get by with that, but Jesus does see what you give. And that's the point that I want us to remember. Jesus sees your giving. Does God need your giving? No. We've said that before. God does not need your offering. God owns it all. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the cattle that the he owns the hills the cattle graze on. He owns the oil under the hills that the cattle graze on. God owns it all. Yet, he does see what you give. But more importantly, God sees your heart. And that's something we really want to keep in mind as we go through this text, that God sees our heart. Our giving is an indication of our heart. And I think that's the, the, one of the main themes of this passage, that our giving is an indication of our heart and our devotion to God. Do we give with a joyful, generous heart? God loves a cheerful giver, 2 Corinthians 9 says. And scripture teaches that our giving should be an overflow of our gratefulness, of our joy and thanksgiving, as we rejoice in God's abundant provision for us, materially and spiritually. Christ sees your giving, and Christ sees your heart, which motivates you to give as you do. Having now seen that Christ, his observation, let us look at the offering that are brought 
First of all, Jesus sees the offerings of the rich. The text says that many put in large sums. And given the fact that the receptacles were brass, I can just imagine what it might have sounded like in that temple, in that court, probably with stone or tile or, or quarry floors and, um, or quartz floors. I don't know what they were made of, but yet the sound would probably reverberate. But these people, the rich, were giving out of their abundance. Even if they gave 10%, it wasn't sacrificial. It didn't hurt them. In fact, it was probably likely that many of them liked the recognition that their giving afforded them. But their giving was no sacrifice. It didn't require much of them. It didn't change their standard of living. It was probably evident when they dropped in a bag of silver or gold coins when, as they tumbled in that everybody would, would maybe turn their heads and look and see who was dumping in that large amount. But we too can be guilty of giving only minimally and not giving sacrificially. Paul Harvey years ago told the story of a woman who discovered a turkey in her freezer that had been there for 23 years. So she called the Butterball Turkey Company and she said, I'm just wondering if this turkey is still good. And the customer service representative said, well, if your freezer stayed at zero or below, it should still technically be good, but it probably isn't going to taste very good. To which the woman replied, that's kind of what we thought. We'll probably just give it to the church. <laughs> that's sad because that happens sometimes. But are we like the rich who are able to give at a level that looks good, but doesn't involve any sacrifice on our part? Jesus saw the offering of the rich, but he especially saw the offering of the widow the text in the ESV says that she put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. The Berean Bible, the study Bible, says it a little differently, says the two small copper coins, which amounted to a small fraction of a denarius. So the first thing we see about this is that her offering was small. That's the lesson, I think, and the, and the emphasis of this. A denarius is a, is a day's wages of a common laboring man of the day. And so what she gave was just a tiny fraction, even of a denarius. The Greek word for this coin means tiny thing. It was the smallest coin in Palestine at the time. It was perhaps worth about seven or eight minutes worth of labor at that time. So see the contrast here. The rich are dumping in perhaps bags of coins she comes in and drops in these two small coins. And I can't help but wonder if she kind of reached in carefully and dropped them gently so they didn't call attention to how small they were. One might look at her offering and say, why bother? But that's not what Jesus said. However, in man's eyes, it was small. The other thing I think we should consider is that her offering was anonymous. It was out of the fullness of her heart, out of sincerity, out of faith. But she wasn't there to put on a show. She wasn't there filling out a gift card for the, or I mean a, a, a pledge card for the building fund. She was there giving out of a heart of devotion. In contrast to the scribes, she was not seeking the praise and honor of men. No, she was doing it out of a heart of faith and sincerity. Her offering was small. It was anonymous, 
but it was also extremely generous in relation to her means. And that's really what Christ was teaching his disciples in his assessment of the whole account. And that brings us to our third point, the assessment. As we come to verse 43, we come to the heart of the lesson. Jesus observes the widow and sees her offering and calls the disciples. And the importance of his teaching is marked by that characteristic phrase, truly I say to you. And in a sense, he's saying, he's, he's, he's kind of grabbing, verbally grabbing the disciples' attention and saying, listen, guys, listen up. I have something to teach you. This is important. He says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. You hear that and you think, wait a minute, that was a small offering. What is Jesus saying? But he's saying, he goes on and he says, the rich had contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. They gave out of their abundance. They gave simply a small portion of a huge amount. It was not sacrificial. It didn't cost them anything. But she gave out of her poverty. I think it's obvious what this means. That she had, she was teetering on the edge of bankruptcy or destitution or hunger or homelessness. We don't know. But she gave all that she had. Jesus even restates it. All she had to live on, she gave everything. She completely trusted God to care for her. Her generosity was great, even, even reckless by some standards. If I gave you my last dollar that I had and didn't even have enough for a meal tomorrow, you would say I was recklessly generous, perhaps even irresponsible. But that's the kind of giving that this widow showed. She knew that God owned everything and would supply her daily bread. And Jesus pointed her out and said that she had given the most because she gave it all. And our giving is not measured by amount, but by sacrifice. She had nearly nothing, yet she gave it all to God. John Calvin said about this passage, and I'm going to paraphrase his his uh, writing of several hundred years ago, whatever men offer to God should not be estimated by how the world values that gift, but by the heart of the giver and the holy desire or affection, as he said, with which that man offers what little he has. The gift is measured by the heart. It's not about the size of the gift, but about the heart of the giver. Once again, as scripture so many places teach us, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And we could think of another contrast from earlier in the book of Mark, and that's with the rich young man that came to Jesus in Mark 10, and he asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responded, here's the commandments, obey the commandments. And, and what was his reply? He said, all these I have done from my youth. And Jesus says, yet you lack one thing. Go sell what you have and give to the poor. And the man went away dejected because he couldn't give it. He couldn't give all. And here this widow gave everything that she had for the, to God in obedience and out of a heart of devotion. Her actions 
make you wonder if she had heard and taken to heart the teaching of our Lord from Matthew 6 when he said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And she was certainly living without anxiety for tomorrow, as Jesus had taught in that same set of verses. Let me ask you, where is your treasure tonight? What things do you truly value? Are you laying up treasures in heaven, or are you simply seeking earthly treasures? I think for most of us tonight, we are blessed in many ways, and, and we struggle to know what it means to give out of poverty. I'm, I'm grateful that most of us are not living like Scripture describes this widow on the edge of poverty, not, maybe not even knowing where her meal is going to come from tomorrow or the next day. But I don't think you have to be teetering on the edge of hunger or homelessness to give out of your poverty. I think we do have to learn a lesson, though, that this widow knew quite well. The first part of that, I think, is to realize that we are nothing outside of Christ. We deserve nothing of this world's good, goods, and we deserve nothing of the spiritual blessings that we have given. We do not deserve the gift of eternal life. It is all of God's mercy that we have or enjoy anything. Every gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow of turning, James says. All of our earthly gifts are a reminder of the goodness of God. And our earthly gifts should remind us of a far greater gift, the spiritual gift, the gift of eternal life that is ours in Jesus Christ. I mentioned this this morning when the Apostle Paul appealed to the Corinthians believers to ask them to give. And at the end of his sermon, if you will, to them about giving, he didn't say congratulations for giving so much. He said, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. We give out of a recognition and a heart that should swell with gratitude over the grace that we have been given in Christ. As one has said, grace is the action and giving is the reaction. We give because he has first given so richly to us. So can, you, can all of us give out of our poverty? I think we can. We must realize that we have nothing to merit God's grace and favor. Everything we have been given is a gift. So when it comes to giving to the church or to the building fund or to missions, the question, how much of my money should I give, is the wrong question to ask. Because it's not your money. It's God's money, and you are the steward of it. A better question is, how much should I keep to live on? How much of God's money should I place over here for my family? And how much should I give to God's work? How much can I actually allocate back to him of what I have been entrusted? Missionary Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. As we well know, we can't take our money with us when we die. After the death of John D. Rockefeller, someone asked his accountants, how much did John D. leave? The answer, he left it all. 
and so will you. In closing, I want to share a story of, of a man that maybe you are familiar with, R.G. Letourneau. He was a man that seemed to know these things well. He was born in the late 1800s, and the, by the time he was a young teenager, he had dropped out of school and started working at the East Portland Ironworks foundry. And while Eterno worked in the foundry, God was working elsewhere. God was orchestrating a spiritual awakening thousands of miles away in Wales, where tens of thousands were coming to Christ in the 1904 Welsh Revival. That revival, thankfully, rippled across the Atlantic and came to cities in America. And during the week of Christmas 1904, churches in Portland, Oregon, the city known as the unheavenly city, interesting that over 100 years ago they called it that, united to hold a citywide gospel crusade. Oh, that this would happen today. By the spring of 1905, 240 major stores and businesses jointly decided to close daily between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. for prayer. Countless people came to Christ, including 16-year-old Robert Gilmore Letourneau. It took 15 years from that moment of his conversion for God to shape his character, hone his gifts, and sharpen the skills he would need to fulfill the calling, his calling as an inventor and entrepreneur. During those years, and I've shortened this list, he worked as a bricklayer, carpenter, gold miner, stump puller, ditch digger, wood chopper, farmer, construction worker, tractor repairman, and field leveler, with demoralizing intervals of, of unemployment in between. He did a lot of things. He was primarily, as you know, as, as you probably know, a road construction contractor. But he also experienced firsthand the great San Francisco earthquake. He survived a broken neck. He lost his first child and barely escaped death himself in the Spanish flu pandemic. And he faced financial ruin caused by an unreliable business partner. And after seeing death in his own family and in, in many in society at that time, he had somewhat of a spiritual crisis in 1919. And he came to his pastor and, and he sought counsel. And in, in Letourneau's mind, he thought to really serve God, you had to be a pastor or you had to be a missionary. But his, his pastor told him, he says, God needs businessmen too. And that stuck with him. And he took that back and he said, okay, then God is my partner in whatever it is I'm called to do. He didn't even immediately skyrocket to success. Instead, in 1927, he found himself $100,000 in debt from a deal that had gone bad. So he worked to pay that off. And even while he was paying that off, he defied the court order to work seven days a week because he wanted to honor the Lord's Day. He had made, during this time, he had made a $5,000 commitment to missions that he insisted to his accountant that he make good on because he had promised that to the Lord. And it was in the early 1930s when the rest of the country was suffering under the Great Depression that Letourneau began to see God work in his manufacturing business. Because previous, in his early days, he had been a road construction contractor and kind of a part-time inventor on the side. And his attorney came to him and said, you know, maybe you should start manufacturing these inventions you're making that you're using to clear for roads and, and so forth. So that's exactly what he did. And God blessed him richly through the 30s. And it's, it's said that during World War II, that 70% of the earth-moving equipment that the Army used in World War II came from Letourneau's factories. So obviously, God blessed him richly during that time. And it was the suggestion of his wife in 1935 that they began to, be, to give, not 10%, 
but 90% to the work of the Lord and keep 10% for themselves to live on. He said, it's not how much of my money I give to God, but how much of God's money I keep for myself. He went on, as, as you likely know, to establish the Laterno Foundation, the Laterno University, to help equip young people to serve the kingdom both in secular careers and in ministry. I can't testify to every detail of this man's life, but he did seem to be one who got what the widow got, who understood what wholehearted devotion looked like in relation to your finances. Even though he was a man with great resources, he gave with a consciousness of the grace that was his in Christ. He gave out of his poverty, not that he was in poverty, but he recognized his poverty of soul outside of Christ. This account of the widow's offering teaches us much about true discipleship. We know that Christ sees all. He sees our offering, and more importantly, he sees our heart, our desires, the things that drive what we do and how we give. He knows how well we remember that all things come from him. We must remember that like the widow, the gifts we give are an indication of our sincerity and our faith in the Lord Jesus. Her piety was expressed in her generosity and sacrifice. Her faith was seen in her giving. Christ was pleased with her faith that was shown in her actions. This is the question I have for you. I leave it with you. Do you have that kind of faith? Let us pray.